and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come on by the Dispatch to check out our wares and then maybe become a member of the Dispatch community. Um, we got some really uh, great stuff up this week, including a deep dive from our own Kaya Himmelman, who spent hours talking to Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, about his worldview. And it'll, it'll clarify everything for you. So I'm um, very excited to have, I can't remember what his current count is, um, of appearances on The Remnant, but he's a fan favorite. We're also, for the first time in, I think, a year in, or the second time in a year, in the AEI studio, which is very exciting. Um, I have my colleague, uh, Tim Carney. Uh, what, what are you at The Examiner now? I am a senior columnist. And when you said current count, I thought you were talking about my kids again. Oh, no, no, no. Um, yeah, only six. Only six um, that you're taking credit for. Um, and, uh, um, the uh, Carnies recently went on a road trip, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It's, it's very exciting. But, um, um, and where was I going to start with? Okay, actually, I want to start with something weird. Um, not weird, but so you are actually have carte blanche to correct me. Um, but when I think of your political orientation, uh, frequency, coordinates, whatever, you come about as close as a youngish man can to, well, one can't, no one with six kids is a young man. I know. I'm just saying, I'm glad, I'm glad this is radio and no one can see me. Yeah, yeah, um, go on. Um, you come as close to a certain strain of what the, what people on the right used to, before the word libertarian came into fashion and kind of changed the meaning of, liber, of, the, of the, the term. You were what the old sort of ISI Buckley types would call one of the old individualists, right? You're not an old right guy, but like the old individualists were libertarian on economic stuff, a little more, I don't want to say isolationist because even though it's, 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 there was, there were honorable people in the isolationist world, it's taken on a pejorative thing. Um, but non-interventionist I think is fair mm -hmm. and socially conservative. And so there was a weird thing. It used to be that. That was called individualists. That they were the, well, they were also they, the, 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 you know, libertarianism is older than modern conservatism. And that tradition, sort of the Nakian kind of tradition, comes up as sort of uh, where libertarian and socially conservative seem like synonymous terms rather than conflicting terms because yeah. it was sort of rugged individualism, local communities, uh, faith, family, that kind of stuff. And you hew to all that stuff. It seems to me a lot of that is in peril. And the real question is, first of all, uh, the two-part question is, one, is that accurate? And how, if, if so, or if not, how so? And two, how come you're not more pissed off? <laughs> because, like, I'm constantly trying to remain a happy warrior in these times yeah. and not be a catastrophist. And yet you remain more chipper and more positive in outlook than, than I do. So I think, I think there'd be a great history, and you know it better than I do, to talk about these words. I mean, we've seen, you know, conservative you and I read Gabriel Kolko. That meant right. something totally different a hundred years ago. Liberal, individualist. I don't think I've identified as an individualist since I, since like after. I mean, my last individualist period was when I was rooting for Achilles and crying at all the injustices imposed on him by Agamemnon when I was about nineteen or eighteen, freshman year of college. Um, 
in part because I've thought of myself as, as very communitarian. I think most of my maturation has been coming to understand that what the depth of man being a political animal means, that that's where we do it. But I, I'm understanding, as you're saying, the tradition of sort of conservatism where, um, you know, the, the non-interventionism, the free market stuff, uh, the, that against a, a Marxism, a Marxist-type collectivism, all of that stuff, yeah, to some extent is in, uh, is in peril. Um, but there's always been a way in which a lot of this stuff has never rested easy. I mean, I just remember 1990s conservatives doing welfare reform and at times seeing the sort of the clash between sort of pro-family and what I would see as a, my, my sort of Christian worldview versus um, the individual responsibility taken almost to its own religious dogma. And that on the right, I've always been bugged by a sort of, I think it was Herman Cain, God rest his soul, who said, who was criticizing the Occupy Wall Street people. He said, they think that they're not doing well because bankers are making tons of money. No, if you're not doing well in life, it's your fault. Mm -hmm. And so there's always been a way to which kind of the personal responsibility stuff becomes this very severe, almost, I mean, distorted Calvinism. I don't like to call it a Calvinism because it would be a, a perversion of it, that, um, that any suffering uh, is your fault and that nobody has any obligation. So the, the, the hyper-individualistic, severe, hyper-judgmental aspect of conservatism has, that's been sewed into a lot of the rhetoric and into some of the policymaking um, has always sat uneasy with my idea of sort of a community obligation. So then when you're seeing this effort in this post-Trump America, um, a lot of it looks like what we on the right would say, you're absolving people of their agency. You're, mm -hmm. you're saying government needs to solve this problem. Um, some of that almost seems like a pendulum swing back from a sort of heartless, maybe hyper-individualism, hyper-individualism from the, you know, the last 30 years of, of conservatism. Yeah, I mean, I, I should clarify in the sense that almost all of these labels are as often as not misnomers, right? Or they're like, they, they, they conceal as much, as much as they reveal as yeah, the, yeah. The, 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 the sort of critical theorists might say. And um, so the end of, you know, it's sort of like we both know people growing up in this world who were to some degree or another deeply attached to Ayn Rand. Yes. And yet at the same time, all that stuff about, you know, uh, uh, I can't, I can't even remember the verbiage anymore, but all that hyper individualism stuff in their actual lived life were pretty generous, decent guys who yeah. like helped other people and were charitable and all that kind of stuff. So like, you know, people sometimes want to take the texts and apply them to the people when in fact, it's sort of like, look, I really like the Dune novels. That doesn't mean I want to ride a sandworm. It's sort of, it speaks to me on one level, but it doesn't define my life kind of thing. And so when I'm talking about the individuals, I'm just about that there was this, you know, there's this thing that happens in the early 20th century um, where we kind of, for the first time, went from having a government to a state. And like in the 19th century, you didn't have any relation, you know, the average American with the exception of the post office really had no conception of like the central government, the state and all yeah. that kind of stuff. 
And so back then, the individualists were the people who didn't actually necessarily just want to go off into the woods by themselves, like in some noble savage. They just wanted to be left alone to run their lives with their own communities. And, and so there was a real communitarian aspect to it. That's all I was really yeah. sort of getting. No, and so, and so the question, so 10 years ago, I think I was giving speeches at organizations like ISI, which I think used to be like the individualist. That's where the individual, yeah, 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 yeah. And now it's Intercollegiate Studies Institute. And my argument then was along the lines of what you're saying. It was saying that the culture war is the left being the aggressor. Even it was not as obvious to everyone then, except for everyone paying attention, that they're going to try to outlaw our way of life and that the culture war should be us fighting to protect our sphere to make sure that our, our churches are not under attack, to make sure that our, you know, that that if you're a baker, you can be a baker and live according to your conscience, et cetera. And I was saying that uh, 10 years ago, and it was definitely libertarian defense of social conservatism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And 10 years later, the on on the right, there's voices of, you know, there's a whole spectrum of voices saying, no, that's, that's folly. What we have to do is punch back and, and push back the, and, you know, so a year ago it was Sarab Amari and David French. It's, it's whatever. And the sort of, one of the philosophical questions at, at stake here. And I think my, my conviction that sort of the, the libertarian defense of social conservatism is the right way to go. I've become less convinced of that, um, in part because, and Thomas Aquinas and, and St. Augustine both say this, like the civil law shapes norms. Mm -hmm. We can say in general culture is upstream from politics, but it, it's also definitely true that, you know, what's in the water might trickle upstream. And that, and that if you look at all sorts of issues, um, what becomes the law then becomes accepted in part because it is the law. The law has a formative effect on our souls. Um, and so if we have sort of laws that are, are we can't, uh, we can't go to that world where we say, you know, the laws can totally be value neutral. That's sort of an abstraction and possibility. The, the existence of public schools makes that obvious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the public schools right. are now very obviously pushing a religion, mm -hmm. um, multiple religions involving gender ideology, involving uh, you know, woke racial stuff. Well, and they also were sort of started to get rid of a religion, right? I yeah. mean, they were pretty anti-Catholic and to, to a significant degree. Yeah, that, that it was, that they were Protestant schools is right. what they were. Um, and that, that sort of, that idea of liberal pluralism, that we can have neutral institutions is something that I've become a lot less convinced of in the last decade. And it doesn't mean that I want the federal government to essentially be a Catholic institution. Um, and the, this, but, and the, what to make of a, a government in this context is, is a lot trickier question. But as far as sort of other institutions, like my library is not going to be a neutral institution. I live in Montgomery County, Maryland, where it's going to be preaching a religion that's not our own, which is fine. There's a synagogue right next to my church and mm -hmm. a Christian reform church right across the street. We're very happy living next door, sharing facilities with people who have other other religions and other faiths. But the uh, sort of, it, in general, the dream of like lots of neutral neutral stuff, neutral institutions, um, is one that's becoming harder to abide by. 
particularly as the sort of secular left and governmental institutions become more clearly, obviously, attached to a religion. And it actually makes me calmer to some extent about what they're doing, because I don't really believe that they're pretending to be neutral. Just like with the news media, I'm like, yeah, they, the New York Times knows who their readership is. And if they're as biased as the Dispatch and the Washington Examiner, it's, it's their world. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying. Um, I did not mean to, for us to go so deep in the weeds so quickly on this, um, but such is the nature of, yeah. you know, the deep preparation we bring into these things. Um, uh, but let me just push back a little bit. I mean, first of all, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that can be said about this. One is um, there are a lot of people who want to make the argument that uh, neutral rules are um, invalid because they, they automatically create equivalences between good and evil things, right? And, you know, my understanding of the neutral rules, the procedural liberalism of the American constitutional system is that... Um, just because we call them neutral rules doesn't mean they aren't objectively good, right? The right to face your accuser mm-hmm. is a neutral rule. It's also a morally valid and important rule, right? Um, the right to due process, the right to free speech, these are neutral rules, but they are also defensible on a deeper moral level as as just and... And, and they have to be defended. And they have to be defended, right? And so there's that part of it. And there's also... Look, I'm with you, Um but the on the fact that the rule the the institutions were never completely neutral, but there's a different. You, you, this is one of these areas and where you actually can be a little bit pregnant, right? I mean, there's there are people who want to say, "Aha, see, look, you know, the public schools started out as this sort of anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic thing. They were never neutral to begin with, so we're always in the in the yeah. business of culture formation." That's a fair and accurate point. That doesn't mean the dial has to go from one click into cultural formation to 11. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a difference between rank indoctrination and, Hey, look, we're Americans. These are the stories that we value as Americans that are important to creating good character and good citizenship as Americans. Um, but at the same time, here are the bad things that America did. And here's another point of view but, you know, so leaning on the scales a little bit to create citizens that love their country yeah. is different from creating mindless Nazi no, automatons. And, and, but, but that sort of meta point you just made there, that there's nothing between zero and 11, that it's a, it's a fundamentalism. And that's really becoming, I mean, people talk about the, you know, partisanship or the, you know, the division. It's, I think really it's an increasing fundamentalism that... Um, I, I see it even among, you know, some pro-lifers who are like, why do we even allow abortion in, um, in the case to save the life of the mother? Right. And you're like, that's a conversation that like really is difficult, not something to have in the open. And if you're going to shout at me in public about the, the principles at play here, like that's, that's losing for us. And it's just not going to be a good conversation. But then on the, on the left, I do think a lot of it is a fundamentalism and it's saying if this thing is bad, whatever it is, some um, something that has the tiniest element of racism in it, it needs to be flushed out. And and I don't, I mean, this is just something I, I've just begun to think about. But now I want to go back to your earlier question um, about sort of why am I uh, chipper? And I think it's because politics um, 
only has so much ability to uh, influence my life, which is a funny thing to say because I live in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I write about the dangers of politics and it's it's literally my job. Um, and and, last, and and your vocation. I mean, and, like you yes. take to it as a serious call. Yeah, I, I care know? about it. I, I'm not a person who just like cash a check and not right. thinking about politics the rest of the time. But the um, but the I mean, and last summer, the, the county government tried to shut down our schools. Mm -hmm. And if you talked to me in that week that we were fighting before my governor, Larry Hogan, put the county government in its place and, and let us open our, our Catholic schools in, in the county. Um, it was different. Mm -hmm. It really was. I remember you were quite obsessed. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was the only thing I did. My kids were walking around singing that Hamilton song. Why is why are you always writing like you're running out of time? But they they knew why, and then that we were trying to. They the the state was the county was attempting to ruin our lives, and that's not an overstatement because our lives are built around our parish and our kids' schools, and that was incredibly personal. The other stuff I take personal because it matters. We're engaged in this fight um, because it matters. But it's a it's a means to an end. Ultimately, you know, uh, last night I was reading Phantom Tollbooth to my three youngest kids. That's not something anybody's uh, going to take away. Um, the culture wars do pose a real threat. Um, and I think being a uh, a Christian and believing that there's uh, having a supernatural outlook allows me to be a little bit chill about things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm also a Mets fan, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I know we're going to lose. I know exactly how we're going to lose. It's going to be to the Dodgers in the National League East, and Edwin Diaz, our closer, is going to blow at least two leads, and probably one of them will be three or more, and I can still be happy about the Mets when they do win, or even when I go to bed while they're winning, knowing what's going to happen when the bullpen comes in. And so that sort of uh, supernatural aspect of being a Catholic and a Mets fan, like our our boss here at AEI, Robert Doerr, mm -hmm. I think allows me to be chipper when things are going bad. And also, you know, now I'm I'm old enough. I'm almost as old as you now. And, like, we've been around for 20 years. According to math, you'll never be as old as me, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> we've been around for enough pendular swing. Yeah. Um, and some of the, the, the conservatism, the stuff on the right that bothers me seems to me a bit like shaking a, a sort of uh, some rust out of a rusty old machine. And even mm -hmm. people who are wrong are asking, uh, challenging questions. So I don't despair about the, the direction of the right. Um, I think that healthy debates are good and that people being wrong in the opposite direction of where conservatism may have been wrong over most of the last 10, 20 years. I think that'll lead to good stuff. In yeah. So I had a, I mean, I, I disagree with you in the sense that I, I do worry about the direction of conservatism. I mean, I had this talk with more than, more than you did 10 years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, the, the whole sort of acceptance of sort of Alinskyite principles about, um, you know, fighting fire with fire about, you know, the, the mainstreaming of industrial policy ideas, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff is bad. Um, the, the glorification of cruelty of just meanness for its own sake is really bad. And it's worse than it was 10 years ago. Yeah. You look at what's going on in college campuses, whether it's Charlie Kirk or, or whoever, um, the, the, the own the lib stuff is now definitionally what supposedly conservatism is about and nationalism as a concept, I mean, I think both of us have our disagreements with nationalism and mm -hmm. we can both concede that there are good forms of nationalism and bad forms of that or 
Yeah. Let's say there are, there are, there's nationalism and then there's really bad nationalism. We can have arguments about all that. I don't like the concept of nationalism generally as a lodestar of conservatism. Mm -hmm. It is now really baked into the cake for lots of people on the right. And, um, I was having this conversation earlier this week with Dan McLaughlin and he was saying, I think he's right about this. One of the, one of the good things about the Trump administration is there was really no talented farm team to flesh out nationalism when he came into office. So a lot of this stuff was sort of farmed out to our guys, you know, yeah. I mean like more mainstream conservatives doesn't mean I agree with them on everything, but there were, you know, there were lots of circuit breakers preventing bad things from happening. We are now in a moment where we're just developing a whole farm team of bad, of bad ideas. I don't want to say they're all bad guys, but if you just, I mean, we can use this as a segue. If you look to the, um, the reaction from some people to the January 6th committee, which we don't think we've talked about any of this stuff, but I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume you think storming the Capitol and beating up cops is bad. Yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, we'll stipulate all that. You have like S Steve Bannon's co-host of whatever, you know, you know, radio Uber Alice radio show that he's got, um, saying that the, uh, cops who testified were an American Stasi. You got people from American greatness crowd saying that the cops were crisis actors. You have Laura Ingram handing out, uh, sort of fake like Oscars for who was the best actor in all of this kind of stuff. You have Nancy Pelosi and, and Kinzinger who I think are open to criticism for all sorts of things. More kids in than, 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 than. I'm sorry, you have Liz Cheney and, and Kinziger yeah. being called, um... You just called Liz Cheney Nancy Pelosi. I know, I apologize for that. <laughs> um, I'll ask to have that stricken from the record. Um, call them Pelosi Republicans. Um, yeah. not for the sole reason that they think it is in the interests of Congress to investigate and attempt to, you know, uh, uh, to use a mob to obstruct a constitutional process. That kind of, and then if you just look at stuff going on at Claremont, there is a whole parallel infrastructure of what is being called conservatism that's getting a lot of donor money that is taking over a lot of, uh, the, the community, you know, media, you know, net networks that I don't, I personally don't feel like I can be part of the same coalition with. So when I look, I do think somebody, I, I had a friend in New York who once said, Almost everybody who cares about politics and tries to pretend that they don't have a party that they're closer to. Like, I will always say, I'm not a Republican. Mm -hmm. But he said, here's a question. When a Democrat does something bad, do you feel embarrassed or either gleeful or angry? And when a Republican right. does it. And so, yeah, this is what makes me the, the best argument that I'm a Republican is that I'm now very embarrassed and more embarrassed than I have been in the past to look at the, the party and the ability of the party's leadership to... Um, or the inability to try to lead, to try to turn to a populace that's largely misled and deluded by what, what our former president led them to believe, and instead to just go along with that is uh, is embarrassing. Seems to me worse now um, than it had been in the past. So that's where I'd agree with you. But I also see, you know, I'm you, the scars of my my battle last year over the school. Um, is not my only scars. My scars over the uh, the Iraq War mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was absolutely another one, and we that was the Freedom Fries era. If we want to talk about congressional being embarrassed, yeah, yeah, yeah. that French fries weren't allowed to be called French fries in the House cafeteria, and then um, back then it was uh, because there was an administration in power 
and things were a little more centralized because it was earlier, it was pre-social media, it was earlier in the internet era, it felt like a sort of suffocating intolerance. Well, what you're describing is a flowering of idiocy all around <laughs> us, which is not the same as a suffocating intolerance. I mean, we were called unpatriotic for <laughs> opposing a bad war and that this was something that struck me as I just remember saying, I was like, I think I'm going to continue to identify as a conservative, but I'm going to lament that this is the threshold. The litmus test for conservatism was, do you support this imprudent, possibly unjust war? And again, having lived through that and then saw the Tea Party, which cheered me and then seeing, okay, maybe that was kind of a flare up of a flare up of some idiocy along with a, a sort of righteous uh, populist uh, rebellion and seeing all this, I'm just sort of used to there being tides. But but what you say now, looking out there, people in power on the right, there's almost none that make me say, well, I'm that kind of mm-hmm. conservative. I'm that, or, yeah, I'm I mean, that Liz kind Cheney of must be a real problem for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Kinzinger is like this big corporate welfare guy. Yeah, 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 like yeah. the two people who are most right on that are people yeah. I, I disagree with. And so it's like, I, I'm just an Amash Republican. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's not a Republican. Who's anymore. not a Republican or an off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's funny. I mean, again, I did not plan on my opening question leading to some 20 minutes on all this yeah. uh, stuff, but I like this stuff. And, um, but this was my theory about why you managed to stay chipper is that y- you have been outside the fishbowl longer than I have about what all of this stuff is. And, your capacity, you have, you have sort of like uh, Dread Pirate Roberts, you have been taking small doses of Iocane powder, by which I mean <laughs> profound disappointment with the political order for far longer <laughs> than well, you've built up a tolerance for. And I think, I think this is important when we look at a lot of the people who over Trump just left, just left the Republican Party and then left conservatism, many of whom, you know, kind of fought side by side, uh, you and me in this. Um, a lot of the people who did that the most were the people who most identified as Republican. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were sort of people who dabbled in political operative plus journalism or mm-hmm. whatever. And so that has really defined people who felt um, much more betrayed by by Trump coming into office because it was like their house had been mm-hmm. reached yeah. by this vile man. Right. Um, it was wh- Napoleon using the church as a stable. Yeah, and so you you and I saw him just as much as Napoleon, but mm-hmm. saw the church as less of a church. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. All right, so um, let's move on to some more current stuff. Uh, in part because I haven't had the issues that you've had with your, your, with the county stuff and masks and school closures. Um, and in part because I have been steadfastly both anti maskophobia and maskophilia. <laughs> um, I, I literally, the other day, I just as by way of non sequitur, I was driving on Fox Hall Road and I saw a guy in a very high end convertible Mercedes. Um, BMW, red convertible, driving alone at twenty miles an hour with a mask on, <laughs> and, yeah. and like so, that's the world. I, I so anyway, I find that crazy, right? But 
the news this week or just basically yesterday, the CDC is basically announced that we're going back to masks. Um, you can feel the mandates coming. I'm actually less troubled by vaccine mandates than I am by mask mandates. Um, but all right, so I don't want to put my thumb anymore on the scale. Yeah. How do you see all of it? Um, so one thing that I'm troubled by is that there's no, there should be an out loud acknowledgement. And there is, if you watch Scott Gottlieb, yeah. like the, the most right guy over the last 18 months, except for when he occasionally speaks up on vaping, the most correct guy is Scott Gottlieb. He, our colleague. Our colleague, yeah. you know, uh, w- was in the Trump administration at the FDA and was on Face the Nation every Sunday for the, the whole pandemic. Um, an acknowledgement that the trajectory of this virus, the trajectory of most viruses I've, I've come to believe, is that it's becoming more contagious and less deadly. Mm-hmm. And so in my county, we've had a surge for a month and there's one person in the ICU and zero people have died in the last four days, last time I checked. And that's generally what's happening. And we are a heavily vaccinated county. Which is, so vaccinated people still get it and generally don't get serious cases. Unvaccinated cases, I think are becoming, I think the data suggests are becoming less serious than they used to be. And so that's what I would like there to be some acknowledgement of that we can have that it used to be you have to prevent cases. Mm-hmm. And now it's going to be we have to prevent cases from becoming deadly. That's what I'm not hearing from the authorities, from a lot of the media experts, from the Biden administration, from our local and state governments is event COVID is here to stay. Right. And <clears throat> COVID is here to stay could be granted along with right now because of the sort of the point where we are with this surge, there should be masking in certain circumstances or, you know, I'd be more, I'm more troubled by the implication that we're going back towards lockdowns. So you talk about vaccine mandates, you talk about masks. I've got ambivalence on both of those issues. I am much more troubled about closing things, about closing schools, mostly about closing, uh, summer camps. Mm -hmm. I don't want that to happen about closing, uh, stores, Restaurants, all restaurants, that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Capacity restrictions. That's where um, the real harm is done because that's where you tear apart the things that make us human. And so that that's where my passion is, is saying we need to be able to get together. And so a lot of my friends who are more anti-mask or more anti-vaccine, I just said, look, this might not be fair, but this mask or this vaccine is what allows us to get together. Mm-hmm. And that's what really matters. And there's a degree to which I got inoculated, not against the virus, but against quarantine. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to make yeah, yeah, sure yeah. that I showed up every week for my Sunday school students, my t-ball players. Um, the best argument among most of my friends for vaccinating your, your teenagers is exactly that. Protect them from quarantine. Make sure they don't miss uh, school, make sure they don't miss their summer camp, make sure they get to be with their friends and aren't stuck at home for another two weeks, bringing back up the sort of depression and isolation or just general teenage despondency that happened, uh, last spring. And so that's sort of, that, that's my view is I, I wish we acknowledge that a rise in cases is not the end in the world, but I hope that we keep our eye on, I mean, I will trade you masks. I, I will take masks if, if you promise not to close anything. Yeah, no, I, I basically agree with that. I mean, I, 
I just, well, so I have, I have many feelings because I'm, I'm, this is the first time I'm legitimately really mad at public policymakers about all this stuff because, so first of all, we, you know, they were hinting about going back to mass mandates and stuff last week. Rachel Walensky, the head of the CDC, in an interview, I believe yesterday, she's telling um, on CNN um, that we have data that's only appeared in the last couple of days. Well, wait, which is it? If it's only in the last couple of days, how come we were talking about this last week? Yeah. And second of all, she says it may be possible that in places with high intensity levels of the infection, that a group of, of 20 or in a group of 20 or so people, one or two people who are vaccinated can pass the, the, the virus on. My understanding, every time I look at the data, that is something like an exaggeration of a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand percent. And we're talking about the breakthrough cases. Um, you know, the, 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 the rate, the ability for a vaccinated person to, first of all, get sick is and incubate the disease is very low. And put all of that aside, put it, and I, th- I honestly think it's disinformation that they're spreading around to try and get back into this fear mongering thing. Yeah. But um, um, with the exception of the argument about kids, which I'm super skeptical about, because even there, they're talking about nationwide, I think about 400 kids have uh, died from yep. COVID out of a base of 160, you know, out of uh, hundreds of millions of people. At some point, put inside the thing about kids, if you have access to the vaccine and refuse to get it at this point, I'm sorry. I wish you didn't do that. I wish you would go get the vaccine. Uh, and I, I will try to convince you to get the vaccine, but that's on you. Like I just, I, I at this point, it, one thing we didn't have a vaccine, everyone should wear a mask because you, you don't want to infect other people and blah, blah, blah. If you've gotten vaccinated, the idea that I still need to wear a mask to protect someone who refuses to get vaccinated or that I should tolerate shutdowns because they refuse to get vaccinated just holds no water. With the me. moral justification for there's a, one of the things we conservatives and, and libertarians believe is that there is a great harm to taking away people's ability to freely engage in activity with one another. Um, and that, I mean, it's, it's really a, a, a conservative argument. Like we, it's sometimes justified to do it. I mean, whether you're talking about a draft or regulation or something like that, there's got to be a graver harm that we're protecting against and a justification for it. And the justification for lockdowns, mask mandates, et cetera, for infringing on our individual liberty was that there was real externalities to your yeah. behavior. When uh, you and I and Scott Gottlieb get together at the bar late at night and are shouting during coronavirus and singing karaoke really loudly and laughing, we're not just putting ourselves at risk. We're then increasing the chance that we get infected, that we infect the other people at the bar, and that one of us, more of us, go out and infect other people. Given the near 100% efficacy of the virus is at preventing serious illness or death, that justification is gone. Yeah. The people we are protecting are people who have taken the risk on themselves and the people that they're endangering are people who have taken the risk on themselves because children are very protected naturally, thanks be to God, and everybody has had a chance to be fully vaccinated. Yeah. And I know, I mean, the, the point you're making here is someone I've been, 
you know, pounding my spoon on my high chair about for a very long time. Short of anarchism, there is no serious theory of the state, no political philosophy that says the state doesn't have an obligation or at least the right to suspend the normal rules to deal with a profound external threat, asteroid, invasion, pandemics, right? The founding father, George Washington, authorized all sorts of things to fight yellow fever. So did Congress. And you get a bunch of people on the right, all of whom were required to get vaccinated to go to school. <laughs> yeah. Now saying that requiring vaccinations is evil and, and, and the authoritarian. And I'm not saying that requiring vaccinations is right. I don't want to be in that position. But uh, it is not a sign in and of itself of a step towards totalitarianism. No, but the, uh, the, there you can argue on the merits, especially if we're moving towards a case where the highly contagious variants are less virulent and, um, and where children are not particularly at risk, that it's, there's less of a reason to do it. Sure. It's and you could, and then, and so, but the idea that you can never require a vaccination is not one that we basically accept because, you know, I think it was uh, Ron Bailey at uh, Reason Magazine who said, just as your right to swing your fist stops at my nose, your right to exhale <laughs> stops at my, your virus stops right. at my nose. Right, right. Um, and then there's this thing which no one will say outright, um, but it's, it's in the air and it's implied and it's sort of lurking out there that part of the point of all of this is not to fight the Delta variant, but to fight the Upsilon variant, or, I mean, you actually know the Greek alphabet. What's the last one in there? Omega. Omega, yeah. That's, kind I, of famously the last one. I should have known that one, yeah. What's the penultimate <laughs> one? <laughs> um, key. Okay, key. So that, that's... Kai, Kai is the normal way. Sorry. Okay. Um, uh, um, or is it Psi? Psi. Psi. Oh, Sorry, okay. the Poseidon. Okay, so Gosh. it's... So it's They're going to revoke the, my degree from St. John's. The penultimate one is, is Psi. Yeah. And the anti-penultimate one is... It's Kai. Kai. Okay. All right. Um, um, and I'm just using penultimate and anti-penultimate to <laughs> compensate for the fact that I forgot that Omega was the last one. Um, but uh, is this idea that there's this... We have to protect ourselves from this, vi from this mutating even further, right? Which on its face has some plausibility and merit to it. The thing I don't understand about that is the Delta variant didn't come from the United States. No. And... The idea that we're not going to get new strains of this stuff from Botswana or Bucharest or Benin is insane. The thing is on the planet, and unless we're going to bar people entering the country indefinitely, the idea that we're going to, we, we need to do all of this stuff to prevent That's a right. new contagious strain that'll break through vaccines just sounds like BS to what is it? What is the number of unvaccinated adults in America? And how does that compare to the number of unvaccinated adults in the rest of the world? It's tiny. Right. Um, and the examiner, our editorial, I think in March was vaccinate India. Right. Um, and not that had Biden listened to us, then he could have stopped this variant. That, that obviously is not true. There's a million reasons why we should be trying to, why our corporations and our government should be trying to get the vaccine out there, but there's no way to administer it to enough people to prevent any variants from right. happening. But that if, if Joe Biden's goal today was let's stop there from being other variants. His efforts would be concentrated on the rest of the planet and not on the United States. Yeah. And, and I think it would be a great thing for the United States to 
there's a million reasons to do it. One, like we have a duty to do it. Two, just imagine, think about India where there's a, the, you know, there's all these pressures. There's all these conflicts. We want to wade in and be peacemakers with them and, and Pakistan. We want to uh, back them up vis-a-vis China. There's, there's a million reasons to go ahead and vaccinate India and all of these other countries. And we, it would be great if everybody thought, America, they're the people who gave us a vaccine. Right. Yeah, it, it just seems to me, I mean, it's, it, there's a certain amount of corporatism that would be involved that, you know, but it's, if you're going to make a case for sort of corporate handouts, this is one of these places where the suspension more, of your normal more, objections. More you know. justifiable than the Marshall Plan, which yeah, I yeah. still have some objections to. <laughs> I, I'm a couple years away from being able to write my Mar- anti-Marshall Plan book, but I'll, I'll come up with that. Well, so it's funny. I can't remember who it was. So back, you know, in my earlier life as a RA at AI, you know, eons ago, um, Somebody, maybe it was Charles Murray, someone was giving a talk or one of these brown bag lunches that we used to have about how there's just very little evidence that government interventions in the economy actually do anything. And maybe the only exception to that rule is um, the Marshall Plan. And then people kind of just looked over side eye at uh, Nick Everstadt and Nick just silently rolled his eyes and shook his head and was like, and mouth like, nope. Because <laughs> apparently the evidence, I mean, there are, there's a, I think it's been written, but you know, it doesn't mean it can't be written again that the Marshall Plan stuff is at least exact. It was good diplomacy. Yeah. It was good, you know, statecraft. Um, I'm glad we did it, to be honest. But the idea that like those countries would not have rebounded um, yeah. without it, I think is just not true. Um, maybe we'll do a whole episode on the, on the Marshall plan. Um, all right. So, um, I'm just trying to think in our minute our remaining minutes. Um, Oh, that's right. So you're working on a new book. I was going to go do rank punditry, but I don't want to rank punditry. So, so. Uh, it's a, a nascent, uh, book. It's actually a, a, a proper word. It's, it's it. the right word. Yeah. Um, so it's on it's our it's embryonic stages. Embryonic <laughs> stage. It's on our, our population bust. And specifically it's an effort by me to do what I don't normally do, which is point to solutions. Uh-huh. Um, we can have, uh, our colleague Ramesh had a great headline in an interview with our other colleague Lyman Stone about this. And he said, you know, make America more family friendly. That's sort of what my book is going to be about. Uh-huh. I, you know, it's a, the, there's no title yet that's still in the very earliest stages, but that there's a lot of things we can do culturally, individually, policy-wise to make this a better place to have kids. Um, one of the arguments is that, you know what, we're better off uh, if there are more stay-at-home moms and dads and that there have been policy choices and cultural pressures to against that for decades. And I think we need to reverse that, that the kids who have someone stay at home benefit, but more importantly, the communities benefit. If there's a dad on the basketball court, a mom on the front porch, every, every boomer and a lot of my Gen X colleagues tell stories of running around the neighborhood on summer vacation and their mom finding out either the bad or the good thing they did before they even got home by a game of, of, telephone and how important that is to that was the real american stasi (laughs) (laughs) mom (laughs) to enforcing uh enforcing norms like i threw a a rock at a dog one kid said i did not throw rocks at dogs that i can remember um but it's like and and mom found out about this or one mom said she was told about like her kid helping some kid who scraped a knee falling off a bike this great story and all of those things enforced by people in the neighborhood 
Um, and that, you know, the where the, the left has been a lot better than the right on a lot of this is walkability. I mean, mm-hmm. the tyrant of, of middle-class suburban families is the car, how yeah. car-centric we are. You have to drive your kid to everything. You have to worry about your kid crossing the roads because the roads are three lanes in each direction, so they can't walk to their friends. So kids are stuck at home more with video games than with uh, friends. The baseball all comes in the form of organized team sports and never right. in the sandlot pickup game. Yeah. Um, and that that's, that's something that I think the right really needs to open its eye to. And then you had some of that kind of funny stuff last year where either BLM or David Brooks, who we normally think of in the same <laughs> breath, but, you know, the nuclear family was a mistake, I think was his headline. That's sort of really wrong in an important way and really right in an important way. Mm. Uh, I quoted in my last book a, a wise woman saying it takes a village to raise a child and that that really needs to be emphasized more too, that parents, one of the biggest problems, one of the reasons that parenting can be so isolating is, uh, I mean, can be so stressful is because it's so isolating. And uh, in the book, I'll dial up and and make fun of some of the silly uh, travel team, overachiever, get your kid into Princeton sort of stuff that makes so many uh, college-educated parents make parenting really hard. So uh, a chapter will, I think, be titled, Have Lower Ambition for Your Kids. (laughs) Um, And so I'm obviously not going to cover everything on this topic, but it's something I actually kind of know. Yeah, my wife and I have, have raised uh, six kids pretty pretty well so far. All six are potty trained, so uh-huh. I'll I'll take that one. Um, and I think uh, I think it, it'll be uh, an important book because we need to reverse the the population collapse that's been going on since the Great Recession, at least. All right, so I'm gonna I have a question and I have one thing of pushback, which I don't think you'll disagree with the pushback. I you know. I wrote a lot in liberal fascism about it takes a village to, to, to yeah. raise a child. I have no problem with the, the literal interpretation of that, right? Yeah. A village is actually a small local community. My problem, and I know it's your problem, is, and this is a bipartisan thing, because John McCain always used to say, I want to live in a country where we dedicate ourselves to a cause larger than ourselves. And whenever politicians say that, yes. they mean some large federal program, right? They mean AmeriCorps or whatever. And, I'm, and I've kind of softened on some of the AmeriCorps type stuff. I just want to be clear. But they're making a point about the federal government. Barack Obama's second inaugural is, you know, it's the landscape that he describes, and you've all written about this really well, is one of the individual and the state in Washington, and nothing in between, right? And so, like, one of the worst, and um, uh, what's his name? Um, I can't remember. Uh, the guy who wrote um, Illiberal Reformers, Thomas Leonard from Princeton, he really hammers home this point. It's something that I've read and written a lot about, is that one of the single worst metaphors, most dangerous metaphors over the last 300 years or 500 years, which rubs maybe a little bit against some of your Catholic stuff, is body politic. Mm-hmm. Is the idea that the entire lo- the entire nation state is one organic entity <laughs> and all the institutions have to work together and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And so when people say things like it takes a village to raise a child, if they mean Fairfax County or like even some... some I wouldn't say Fairfax, a okay, smaller county. A, yeah. or, some, just, yeah. or they mean a certain neighborhood, right? Yeah. 
I'm with you on that. But yeah. when they say, and therefore I have a program that is going to transfer these entitlements to blah, 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 blah. They are stealing a homey concept and trying to paint it onto a nationalized bureaucratic Absolutely. plan. It's a very Christopher Lash kind of point I'm trying to make, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the second, you can, you can tee off on all of this, um, but in the second, the question is, um, there's a difference, it seems to me, listening to you talk about this stuff, between being pro-natalist, which literally means pro-making more babies, and I'm mm -hmm. pro-baby, babies are good, um, and pro-family, right? Because you can have a system that creates a lot more babies, but doesn't necessarily support families, right? Mm -hmm. um, is there a tension in there, or do you just think one goes with the other? No, I mean, I do think that, uh, well, first of all, you're right. The, the analogy between small governments, uh, you know, the Greek police city-state and, and national government of 350 million, um, making that analogy sort of carelessly is one of the, the great problems of, of Western thought. I, I, you could say of the left, mm -hmm. but the right does it just as bad. Republicans do it just as bad. Um, like Barack Obama talking about paying your taxes is just good neighborliness. Good, good neighborliness. <laughs> um, and his life of Julia was entirely right. Exactly. And, and I, I talked about that in alienated America that like you, there was no other human being until under president Obama, Julia decides to have a baby. Right. Right. Um, and the baby is the second person there. And Obamacare is the, the Holy spirit in this virgin birth. Um, but what we're doing, uh, <clears throat> But being pro-family and pro-natal, um, yeah, it's different. And a lot of people uh, in the sort of beginning of the the Planned Parenthood family planning movement were saying, this is pro-family because this is going to make you stronger. And one of my arguments is going to be that, you know, the uh, overly planned family doesn't uh, do, uh, ends up on a society-wide level being uh being harmful if what you're going to try to do is make sure that you can provide everything you possibly need right. for the one or two kids that you have. Um, so that's the other side of it is that, um, that, I mean, I think it's ultimately a conservative insight that we, our ability to control and plan down to every detail, our life often ends up backfiring. Um, but I think that what we need now is a, a shot of, of pronatalism. Um, and not just pro-family stuff. Uh, I think conservatives, and I say this in alienated America too, I think conservatives at the time, at times have been too pro-nuclear family to the exclusion mm -hmm. of the, of, of the village. Um, but the, uh, but in this case, I think there's general support for families, not enough support for making them bigger and having more babies. And so sort of trying to push again. I've always said like in a different country, in a different time, I could have written a different book. Mm -hmm. Alienated America was about community. I, if I were living in a different time, I'd be writing like, you guys need to break out of your little cliques and yeah, small yeah, yeah, worlds yeah. and yada, yada. In a different country, I could write that too. And I think that right now, uh, the, the idea that babies are good, the idea that humans mm -hmm. are good, the idea that we, how you define your we, whether it's, Humans, the Western man, white college educated people in Park Slope, immigrants, however you define your we, if you don't think we are good, you're not going to have 
more of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this, I think, has has shown up a lot in the West today. That 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 sadness about our ourselves. Um, and you see it happen um, uh, across the races in this country, where there's a collapse in the birth rate, mostly um, among the sort of second generation immigrants. Um, the immigrants are having lots of babies and their children are not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so where there's the most hope, whether it's an immigrant population or like Mormon Utah, there's lots of babies right? and something else. And I think it's an infectious sadness. And so pushing back on that and saying, actually, we are good. Yeah. All of you are good. Um, that I think is a really important, uh, important message to get out. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an enormous amount of it in the, in the culture and the popular culture in particular of, of, you know, you can go back to the first matrix movie where agent Smith is explaining that he's figured out that human beings are a virus and they're yeah. parasitically eating on planet earth. And that is all over the place in, and I think climate change argument, and again, climate change is real. We should deal but with it. Conservatives have this problem too. They do. They have sure th- that, that b- more babies means more welfare cases. Right. Right. And again, this is where sort of some of my old libertarianism fades away in the face of of seeing this. Like, actually, people are good. And you know what? I'd rather have that welfare case than than have that person stamped out or tell somebody they can't have a family. Yeah. And also, division of labor is good in terms of it Yeah, as just a matter of economics. And every additional person you add is increasing the likelihood that someone will figure out how to solve all of these problems. And, you know? and I the way I often put it is that human life is easier and longer than it used to be. And then it was, uh, 500 years ago and 500 years ago is better off than it was 500. Years. It's not a straight upward line. We have ups and downs for our lifetime, for the lifetime of this country. It's been generally a straight up. And, um, so what are the causes of that? It's not climate change. It's not lizard people. It's not space aliens. It's other humans inventing and innovating so for every human that's made the world worse the net effect of humans is making the world better so your child has an expected value mm-hmm. right uh, above zero yeah no um i look forward to it and um i think you're talking saying before how you're used to losing and you make made peace with it um i think you should go back and find the passage in whitaker chambers's witness where he describes leaving the communist cause for the, the anti-communist cause and he's joining the losing side and just change all the language to the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it'd be a great little essay. <laughs> I'll do it. All right. Uh, Tim Carney, uh, uh, author of Alien in America, wonderful book, and a forthcoming book uh, uh, may or may not be titled Babies Are Good. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right, so uh, I finally get to say it. Tim has left the studio, not figuratively, but literally, because we are actually in a studio. Um, and uh, for those of you who um, wanted rank punditry at the beginning and instead we got deep into the meaning of life and whatever else that was, um, I'm not going to say I apologize because that's one of the, that's, that's not a bug of this podcast. It's a feature. Uh, but um, other than that, um, I had something else I really wanted to tell people. And I can't... Oh, um, if you're not a... Uh, paid member of the dispatch community. Maybe you can have someone forwarded to you, but I had, um, I had a bit of a dyspeptic rant in the mid, on the midweek, uh, uh, G file 
about all these things and I'm glad I did it because otherwise I would have done it here. And, um, uh, so again, if you can become a paid, uh, member of the dispatch community, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, stay tuned for the solo remnant and, um, other exciting announcements to come. And with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.